Jordan is on best. Harper's on middle. Play together, they believe. Um, if there's Levert, it's cold. Levert, back in. Speed. Oh, he's a one-man wrecking crew. Holiday, shot clock down to six. Finds one. Welcome to another edition of the Indy Corn Roast Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Schindler. As always, before we get started today, if you haven't already, please be sure to rate and review us over on Apple Podcasts. We always want to hear from you. Get your feedback. Let us know what you like, dislike. If there's anything uh, that you uh, that you want to hear, let me know. Um, so really exciting moment today. Uh, not to, I, I try not to like hype myself up, but um, this was today marks the one year anniversary of me working at Indy Cornrows. So uh, which is I got that notification on my phone this morning. I was like, oh, holy shit. I would not have uh, I would not have even noticed that today, but kind of wild. Um and it's weird because the last calendar year like feels like 80 years and oh, simultaneously one day. So if you had asked me how long you'd been at Indy Cornrows, I don't know if I would have said a year. I might exactly. have said longer than a year. I don't that's, know. That's how I feel. Like I had I had no idea, but uh here we are. I mean, as as you could hear, joined by the wonderful Caitlin Cooper, one of my favorite people to talk basketball with and learn basketball from. Coming at you with another edition of Two Questions Tua. Caitlin, how are you doing today? Doing good. It was nice of me just to jump in and talk right over my own introduction. Like, hey, if people don't just, know the voice by now, I mean, that's on them. So. Just traditional podcast etiquette there. I can't even follow it. But yeah, good to be on here again. I look forward to doing these every month, trying to make them appointment listening, trying to put lots of effort so people want to hear us talk and uh, get ready for what we have at the end of the pod. Oh, we, have, going to be. we have some great stuff coming. I'm yes. very excited. Uh, so do we want to... Oh, I mean, I always forget to do it. Do you want to re-explain what Two Questions, Two I is for any of our uh, first-time listeners? Oh, yes. If you're a first-time listener, so we do Two Questions, Two All once a month, and it's just a reference to Reb Porter's classic call at the end of quarters where he would say, two minutes, Two Ha, and we've just reworked that so that each of us come up with two questions that the other person doesn't know what they are, and we just answer them blind, and it just turns into a pretty long, rambling, brainstorming session about all things Pacer, and then and later on, a separate topic. Yes, the separate topic is also very exciting. Just you're just gonna have to wait for it. So, do we want to? Do you want me to start, or do you want to go first? Um, I'll go first. Like on the one note, I really wish that at some point I would be on this podcast, like right after the Pacers win a game. Like every time I'm on, I feel like it's some deflating loss (laughs) or something weird has happened, and then I'm on here like being the downer for everyone. But so we'll go with. I'll do my first question, which is. Over the weekend, obviously, the Pacers get a great win over the Suns, then playing Denver last night. Which one of those games, in your opinion, was more real or maybe I should say uh, more reflective of who the Pacers really are? Ooh. Wow. That is a good question. Ah, okay. I Of this season or just in general? Of the season, yeah, of who okay. this team is. Yeah, I mean, of the season, I think the game last night against Denver has to be um, as awesome as the win was against the Suns. I mean, we saw what I've really felt most of this year has been uh, in the game against Denver last night. I mean, the, the team went down early by double digits and then stormed back, had a phenomenal, uh, really phenomenal stretch to, to end up going up in the third quarter uh, and then just got absolutely 
blasted in the fourth quarter. I think they scored two points in seven minutes. Um, it was just ugly on, on both sides of the ball. Um, and it's not like it was all bad. You saw great flashes. Like I think Miles Turner had one of his best defensive games he's ever had yesterday, uh, which is saying a lot considering how good of a defensive player Miles is. Uh, I talked to multiple of my friends who, who cover the Nuggets and they thought that, you know, he's played the best individual defense against Nikola Jokic of, of just about anybody in the NBA. Um, but then that's countered by Domas had a really rough game, uh, almost gets tossed at the end. Um, Goga had a really good game, but he only plays nine minutes, which, I mean, you could, you could argue that. Um, basically my point in saying is there, there are flashes, but they're overly marred by, a really rough close to the game uh, after last year, so much of the third quarter at, as it was normally coined the third quarter, especially on Pacers Twitter um, that has really spilled over into the Pacers, just not being able to close out games in the fourth. Um, and I, I guess we can get into what that's stemming from, like why that's happening. But I think I would just say that's good. I almost think how well they played in Phoenix is kind of, punctuated by how much they struggled in the fourth quarter against Denver because they even if they get some momentum like that would have been huge if they could win this game against Denver they're up at the end of the third and then we what happened last night happens um like instead of coming out of the the all-star break two and one you're one and two and you're you're coming out to play a Brooklyn team who who beat the crap out of you last time you played them um it's going to be a tough stretch and, and being two and one would have been really, really impactful after those games. But um, I think that would be my long winded answer saying uh, the, the Denver game was a little bit more indicative of where this team is at right now. Okay. Well, I think that both games had a certain degree of mirage to them mm-hmm. uh, in Phoenix, Brogdon and Sabonis were, I mean, they were basically dominating Phoenix's defense hitting with quick hitters and what they did with Doug McDermott. I mean, McDermott basically put on a clinic and that exposed things, but that's also because of how Phoenix was setting the defense. I mean, there, there's a very definite reason why Aiton came out of that game with two minutes to play in the third quarter and never returned. Yeah. And they were playing him deep. That was prevent, that was giving the Pacers the opportunity to use those handoffs and really take advantage of that extra space. And that's how they were getting into offense so quickly. Um, I thought that there was good things to take away from it, but when you watched it, when I watched it back, like the Suns defense and other areas besides just that schematic way that they set it, I mean, there are certain games where Aiton plays higher, but I mean, that was a choice that they didn't make against the Pacers and then didn't really adjust it until the fourth quarter when they went to Sarich and started playing him a little bit at the level, um, but not fully the entire quarter. But the Suns defense outside of that was kind of bad. Like, I don't know how else to term it, but like Devin Booker was giving up screen rejections to Brogdon at will, like, and then he and Aiton were arguing about it instead of forcing him over the top. Like that happened several times. And then like Mikel Bridges is a good defender, but when the first half they are trailing and forcing McDermott over, and then McDermott's just shooting at the top of the key into the big chasm of space that Aiton's giving him. So in the second half they adjust and they decided to start, top locking Doug and then he's just scurrying back door and there's no defender back there to help against the top locking. So, I mean, that's great reads by McDermott and Sabonis, but it also speaks, I think a little bit to what the defense was. I didn't think that the Suns, I mean, they kind of struggle at times against below 500 teams and whether 
we want to admit it or not, like that's what the Pacers are. And I didn't feel like they were giving, they were playing quite as hard as the Pacers were. Like the Pacers came out with a different, I felt emotional energy. And I don't know if that was a product of just knowing they had Levert back in the lineup, but, and then some of the lineups just made more sense. Like when you're pressuring with TJ and Edmund and you're actually getting steals and converting them, that also helps juice your offense because you can get out and run. But mm-hmm. I mean, even by comparison to the first game against Phoenix, the Pacers did not struggle to score in that game against Phoenix when they lost, they could not get any stops. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that what you said about miles, I actually thought miles was really good in the game against Phoenix defensively. Um, and especially, specifically if I can talk in one particular area because he had a rough time in that game against Cleveland defending floater range against Colin Sexton that was the reason they had to go to box him one in a large part because he wasn't he was kind of just standing straight up and wasn't coming high enough that can be a soft spot for him and I thought he did a really good job against Booker and Chris Paul in those areas but also like Chris Paul kind of had some uncharacteristic turnovers so I think you kind of have to temper some of what it was I think it was the best win that they had this year and they played more complete on both ends but I also think it was a product of how Phoenix was playing them And then on the other side with Denver, I think that there's definitely a human element there that has to be considered. Mm. Like, I don't know what those guys' routines are individually before they go play games and to not land there because the airport shut down until late in the afternoon, not be able to get into your regular routine. Plus you're playing at altitude. Plus it's the third game in four nights. I think we probably could have assumed that fourth quarter was coming. Like, I mean, I kind of did. It's become a regular part of who the Pacers have been to a certain extent, but it was also exaggerated circumstances last night. And I didn't really feel like the Pacers were probably going to keep up with Murray and Porter and Jokic. I mean, they didn't. I looked up this morning and there's been two games this year that all three of them have scored at least 20 points in, and both of them are against the Pacers. They all three present unique matchup issues. And Jokic comes out hot. I mean, the guy took, 25 shots last night to only five assists and I think that says quite a bit because he's been more aggressive this year looking for his offense but he's still predominantly a guy who's going to get his teammates involved and he was really going after that only missed one shot in the fourth quarter so I felt like they really needed to bank points in those bench minutes especially in the first half when they're playing those Murray only minutes and it just didn't happen the bench minutes were pretty bad which is a whole nother talking point that we'll get to in a different question. But I think that my answer is we still don't really know what this team is. Like, I don't think I look back at both games and I don't think either one of them was perfectly reflective of who they are. And that's kind of a problem that the front office has right now, because there just hasn't been any sample size to know what are they. And like to take one side note off my monologue, like Karis was used um, rather interestingly Uh, last night against Denver. Um, against Phoenix, he had more pick and roll possessions. And last night there was several where he was literally just standing in the corner. And I think that it would be good to explore using him and getting him to find spots as a cutter. They ran some of those corner flares where they come up and fake that screen and then duck back and Denver covered that fairly decently. But, um, I don't think that his role is a spot up shooter. And maybe some of that was he's coming off of his first game. Maybe his routine wasn't quite there. I don't know what he's feeling like in his body. I'm obviously not him, but I think you need to get him more on ball reps, even if you're using off ball actions to get him to those. And he just wasn't giving much opportunity to handle, but I don't know what you thought of that. No, I agree. Uh, I mean, we've talked about this before too. Um, Like when the trade initially happened, uh, Karras is not a great catch and shoot player. Uh, he's really great at 
Well, I, I don't know if I would say great, but like he's he, his his best looks from three come when he's taking them off the dribble. Um, he's just not necessarily a spot up guy currently. Like that's not who he's been in Brooklyn. I was actually talking to Matt Brooks about that today uh, from over at Nets Daily, and uh, we were just talking about how he can be utilized better. And um, I agree too. It's not even like it was tough because the the bench minutes that he played, like he played that that small stretch with the bench, and it was not good um and it just he just felt kind of awkward on the court like he wasn't he really was at the four yeah <laughs> yeah and I know part of that is like we like we're talking about I mean part of that's the roster construction right now and having uh injuries to TJ Warren and it's actually just TJ Warren now but still I mean that's that's almost even more indicative but um point being it just was awkward because TJ McConnell had to handle the ball for the most part and um Karras was just kind of out there spotting up and it was it was weird and I, I, I appreciate what you're saying, too, because I don't think anything has to come necessarily from him or like more has to come from him running pick and roll. Like, I think use him like T.J. Warren. Um, he's he's not the same kind of like he's not the exact same player, but he has the ability to if you all right, get him to a spot and then then get him the ball and let him create from there, um, asking him to just create out of a high pick and roll and, and make everything happen from there is it's not that it's like harder, but it's just diversifying the looks that he's getting. And, and I, I, I totally agree with that. Yeah. I mean, that goes back to the, I mean, I wrote a pretty lengthy article about that after the trade happened and they did some of that in his first game. I mean, they ran him off the, the Iverson loop series that they were originally using for TJ and then plugged Oladipo into, but I mean, I, I think he's a pick and roll caliber player and I want to see him making some reads out of that. I think that will be valuable Intel moving into next season for them to, on earth plus just just the ability to get brogdon off the ball some and be able to get him rest in possessions get him some easier shots i think will pay dividends long term but you know we'll see again i don't know what his body felt like last night i don't know what the pregame conversations were about what his role was going to be but that was a little bit iffy for me but we'll transition to your first question yeah um so i mean that that go uh this would it would transition pretty perfectly, but I kind of we'll we'll do this one, even though it's more heavy hitting than the than the second question I have. Um, who are the odd men out? Odd men out in this rotation when the roster is healthy, um, because I think that brings up a lot of interesting discussion for uh, what the team does in the offseason or maybe at the trade deadline. Even um, I'm not currently of the impression that anything's going to happen at the trade deadline because the team already made. Uh, you know, their most sizable move in four years. Um, but regardless, I mean, I think that with a lot of the stuff that we're seeing on court and the way that the, the roster is built and the very clear flaws that it has, uh, I, I don't know. There's a, there's a lot to, to kind of look at there. Okay. So this is definitely going to feed right into what my other question is because it was the one most commonly asked on Twitter, but I'll avoid that part. And let's just talk about this. So To me, the spot that's going to be in contention when everybody is healthy is between Aaron, Edmund Sumner, and Jeremy Lamb. Mm -hmm. Would you agree with that? Yes, 100%. And that's where it gets tough because I didn't look up this number this morning, but I did look look it up yesterday. And the minutes with McConnell and Sumner are – the Pacers are slightly positive in those right now. And I don't have the number. I think it's 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 less than 100 minutes, I think. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, it's slightly positive, and that's fine. Like, against the Cavs, when they were really getting active and forcing turnovers, 
And I think that Edmund's done his role. He's done what he's been asked to do. But when you get into the half court setting, like on some occasions last night, the lack of shooting is somewhat problematic. You have to get pretty creative with some, with the sets that the Pacers run. You have to get somewhat creative, especially if they take the baseline away with some of the sideline actions that McConnell's running. And, and Edmund has it hit some threes, but I'm not convinced in the long run that that's going to be like something that the defense is going to credibly respect unless yeah. he's like hitting them at a high volume. And the case with Jeremy, his defense has just been so damaging. Like, I don't, I don't know how else to say that. Like, and it's not, some of it is because he's played out of position, but right now he just doesn't look like he's moving well. And I don't, I mean, we talked about it before the season even started. I don't think the system is going to be particularly kind to him, especially given that one of his weaknesses, predominant weaknesses is his closeouts. And some of the times when he's like, you know, peeling over on a switch to get to veer back into the guy or to get back out to the to the line on a pop like it, it's just very pokey for lack of better terms and and that's kind of who he already was like his defense wasn't great last year but it isn't what it's been so far I think he's played um, 500 minutes so far this year and in those minutes the Pacers have given up 116 points per 100 and I want to be careful with that because that shouldn't all get pinned on Jeremy but um, his scoring is so variable that it becomes very hard to survive those minutes when he isn't on. And he has had some off games. So then we come to Aaron and I just don't know what to make of Aaron this year. Like that's been one of the most fascinating slash puzzling enigmas of the year for me because he played in a spot up role last year. He fit well with TJ McConnell last year. And his reads just really haven't shown a lot of growth, even in the minutes when he is playing point. He's not drawing fouls out of the pick and roll. His finishing at the rim remains questionable. The three-point shooting has been somewhat up and down, a little bit more up over the last month than what it started out to be. But my main point here is I would have a hard time if I'm Nate Bjorkran looking at Edmund Sumner and being like, we're going to start playing Aaron again when everybody's healthy and you're benched, even though I think that Edmund Sumner's ideal role would probably more likely be like special teams. Like this is a game where we think we need extra length, or this is a game where we know we want to play triangle and two or box and one. And we want to use you as the chaser. I think that makes a lot of sense for him. And I think Aaron overall has the higher ceiling, Mm -hmm. but right now when you're not performing to expectations, I think for a coach to be able to look at Edmund and be like, well, you're out of the rotation is a tough look, but um, right now with the way things stand, I would lean towards Sumner of the three. Yeah, no, I agree. He's been, uh, I mean, especially too looking in the, in the seven games that he's actually played double digit minutes, or I think it's eight now after updating last night, like he's been, fantastic defensively and he's he's doing things offensively um and again like you mentioned the three ball is falling but it's very low volume so it's pretty volatile right now in terms of what it actually means statistically um Aaron is weird I I feel like his defense has been a lot better um over the last probably two or three weeks um and like you mentioned the, the three is falling but he still isn't I mean he's taking a lot of floaters and just not like he's driving to the rim, but, but stopping short to, to take those floaters. And, and when they fall, it's nice, but when they don't, it's pretty obvious. And then he doesn't end up putting that much pressure on the rim in general. Um, it's, it's tough. And I'm not really sure 
what to think about it. But I agree with you ultimately that it, it comes down to Jeremy and his fit overall just seems kind of wonky. Um, and I don't mean that in a, in a poor way. It's just like, like we mentioned the system for him and where he's at physically right now. Um, it's just not great. And I think it, maybe I don't, I don't think we like sung his praises too much, but I think with how well he was playing offensively coming out the gates and considering everyone was playing pretty poorly defensively, um, it, it kind of took away from like noticing how, how bad the defense was. And as things have tightened up a little bit defensively for everyone, it's been pretty apparent, like in the Lakers game, um, there were, I mean, the team started scrambling a lot better after the all-star break, at least I felt like it has. Um, but there are, possessions where Jeremy is just like, I mean, he's closing out on the wrong guy routinely and um, it's just kind of all over the place. And that's where a lot of the breakdowns I've felt have come from. Um, but it's just interesting too, because then it, it brings into just talking about more of the human aspect. Cause I, I don't like talking about players as assets. I, I That's not really something I'm comfortable with. Um, but it just in looking at, at the roster and the way the caps work, like Jeremy is a very tradable contract if you look at it that way, but also, I mean, it, it's very, just difficult because I don't, I mean, he's not the best player that's ever signed in Indiana or anything like that, but just considering, I mean, he's a pretty high profile free agent for, for someone to sign in Indiana. Um, one of the better free agents of, of the past, like probably five or six years that signed in Indy. And it brings up a lot of questions of how does that read? If you, if you were to trade a guy after he comes back from a devastating knee injury, um, I, maybe I'm reading too much into that, but I do think that there's kind of a factor there um, that would be, I, I know that the, the front office weighs things like that. So I don't know. It's, it's interesting to look at because a, a lot that I keep coming back on and I wrote about last week. Um, I mean, TJ Warren is extension eligible this summer, but he's not, he's that's not going to be signed. There's almost, I, I, I don't speak in definitives very often, but it's a $15 million qual look, not qualifying offer. The fifth, the extension is the max that the, the Pacers can offer him is a $15 million right around there this summer. And TJ Warren is worth way more than that on the open market. Um, so in terms of having cap flexibility uh, to actually sign TJ and still have some, some solid depth on the bench, it's something that the front office has to be thinking about already for sure. Yeah. I mean, if you're making a choice between Doug and Jeremy, all things equal, who do you think fits this team better? Oh, Doug, for sure. Yeah. I mean, and I think that's what has to be considered. I mean, they're going to know what his market is better than any of us, obviously, and where, you know, how much he would want to stay in Indiana. But, I mean, everything that Doug does with the off-ball motion, and, it, I mean, quite frankly, his defense has just been better than Jeremy's this year. That can't really be a thing to quibble about at this point where, like, you know, well, you know, if, if Doug's shot isn't falling in his defense, like right now, that's a leg up over Jeremy. So, and I, I just think that you'd be giving up a lot to be like, oh, let's let's ditch the Sabonis-Doug connection with everything, their chemistry that they have. Mm -hmm. I mean, what value do you think that Doug's going to command in free agency? Yeah, that's something I have been trying to really think about. And um... I was looking up some comparables because somebody wanted to know about Doug. And like over the summer, obviously, um, we know that Justin got three years, 18. Justin's a better defender than Doug, but isn't doing as much off the ball. I mean, on ball, as far as, you know, being able to 
do stuff off the dribble when he comes off a screen. Um, Bryn Forbes got two years, five. I think Doug's definitely going to get more than that. I don't think he's going to be anywhere close to the Joe Harris Davis Bertans contracts. Cause yeah. obviously he doesn't play the four like Bertans and Brooklyn had every reason to overpay for Joe Harris. I'm not saying it is an overpay, but like they really wanted to retain him. Mm-hmm. Um, but one that I do think is interesting, not from this last, this summer, but the season before is Seth Curry's contract. He, his initial year is 7.8, then 8.2, then 8.5. That seems reasonable to me for what Doug might get just because, I mean, in, in that year in Portland, Seth put up career high points, expanded his game, did more off the dribble. Um, he was even occasionally used as a secondary ball handler up there. And then defensively, you know, I'm not going to say he's a lockdown defender, but he can hold his own a little bit on the perimeter. So that feels like a fair number to me, but I don't know what you were thinking. Yeah, I, I've been torn on this because, uh, I mean, I think you look at just what, like, teams are, it's been brought up to me, you know, he's having his worst three-point shooting year since I think his rookie year, or at least his worst three-point shooting year in Indiana. But then teams can also say, hey, I mean, he's been a 40% three-point shooter right around there for most of his career, and he's doing a lot more in terms of getting to the rim and diversifying his game as an offensive player. He's squarely in his prime right now. He'll probably be in it for if it's a three-year deal, most of the deal. Um, and I think looking at this free agency class, right after it was widely hyped as being one of the biggest, best, brightest ones out there, not to say that it's like worse now, but I mean, Giannis is off the table. Um, a, a lot of the, the, the players who are headlining this are no longer going to be available. And, I think there's I, I, I don't want to say that Doug's going to get overpaid, but I do think he's a wing with size who can shoot extremely well and attack closeouts. And um, there are a lot of contending teams that will will more than consider that. And um, I wouldn't be surprised if he ends up getting more than the full MLE um, for 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 multiple years, uh, just because. Again, he's not Joe Harris. He's probably a tier or two below because Joe Harris is a much better defender than I think people give him credit for. Um, and he's even slightly better of a shooter than than Doug, which is still something remarkable to even think about. I was watching the, the Nets play yesterday, and it's just like mind-blowing to think that that man shoots 52% from, from catch-and-shoot threes. Um, but overall, I do think that uh, it, it, it kind of depends, but I, I fluctuate back and forth on what he's going to get paid. Regardless... I think it's going to be tough for, for Indy to keep him. Right. I mean, my main point was that's what number I think is not necessarily what another team will offer him, but oh, what number okay. I think right. is fair for him. Like I could see him getting more than that potentially. I don't even know what all teams have cap space right now. I know nine, nine are projected to have it, but I don't know which ones it is, but um, I think, I'll just go ahead and ask my second one because this flows into all of this. Um, ideally, what's your rotation? I mean, not just even that this, that specific player, but um, how are you shuffling guys? Oh, okay. Over the back end of this season. And you can take into account if you think the Pacers are going to sell on somebody or, you know. Whatever. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think my ideal rotation would be – I, I kind of like bringing out um, a ball handler and Domas early and having them run the bench unit because that's just – that's worked and that's been effective. Um, and I, I think ideally you either have Malcolm or Karras 
um, running the bench unit with Domas down the stretch, because I think that just having that other high level shot creator and playmaker next to Domas is huge. And even though the bench showed some signs of life before getting completely obliterated um, in that back end, which they, I think they played probably two minutes too long. It felt like, um, but <sighs> I think it's probably a 10 man rotation or nine and a half man rotation. And it, like you mentioned, just kind of depends on the night who gets out there, but then that brings up a lot of questions like Aaron, then Aaron holiday is probably out because TJ McConnell is, is who you're going to be playing those minutes mostly. Um, man, this is tough because it's weird to even think about Justin coming off the bench now with how long he started and honestly how good he's been, but he's so vital to what the bench does too. Um, I mean, yeah, Jeremy's probably not in that. Maybe Ed is your nine and a half guy, but then you also want Goga getting minutes. I mean, this is, I wrote about this before the year started on what the, uh, what the team would look like, um, ideally minutes wise after what was projected as like the, the minutes, um, like when the press conference happened and they, the KP and, and, and Nate talked about, you know, how they envisioned the team getting minutes. And they were like, well, you know, Gogo wants, we're going to play Gogo more. And I'm like, okay, so Gogo's going to play eight to 10 minutes a game consistently. And that hasn't necessarily been the case this year. He's played, he's definitely played more, but not, um, not in a consistent stretch. Um, Aaron Holiday's played about the same, a little bit less, actually. What am I talking about? About the same. Uh, but I mean, then they talked about getting TJ more minutes at the four while, <sighs> That's obviously TJ is not here, but envisioning that in the future, whose minutes are are going at the four if you're playing TJ at the four more, because that means either Domas or Miles is playing less. And from what we've seen this year, it's been Miles who plays less. Um, and then where do Goga's minutes come from? Because if you're not trying to cut down too much on the starting minutes, then Goga's minutes are gone. I don't, it's a very big conundrum, I, but I guess I would say ideally it's a – a nine and a half to 10 man rotation, but also at the same time, I think you start bringing up questions of, do you make some kind of consolidation move? Um, because you have almost too many guys who are capable of playing that you can't play all of. Yeah. So I tried to chart a lot of this because like I said, like six people asked about ideal rotation who would be in the rotation if the entire roster was healthy and mainly I had like three or four things, boxes that I wanted to check mm -hmm. for things that I think are important that necessarily aren't even about, you know, winning individual games as much as things that I think they need to get a look at. And hopefully they work well for them. But anyway, so, and they asked about the ideal starting lineup, which I think is pretty obvious. We're talking Brogdon, Karras, TJ, Warren, Miles Turner, DeMontis Sabonis. So at that point, I'm playing that group until about, the sixth minute mark, five and a half mark. And then I'm going to bring Justin in for Sabonis. I think that's what works better. I think getting him the break earlier in the game and playing Miles Turner more in the first quarter is the better arrangement. So I'm going to bring Justin in at the three, and then I'm going to bump TJ Warren down to the four, let him play the four with Miles and the rest of the starters plus Justin. Then after that, I would sub in, and this is going to be a little bit of a bigger lineup, but I would bring in McDermott, let him play at the two with Justin still at the three, TJ at the four, Miles. And then to close the quarter, go with McConnell and then whoever we're plugging into the, you know, Aaron slash Edmund slash Jeremy slot with McDermott, Justin, and Goga. And I'm going to get Goga 
his minutes at the end of the first quarter, beginning of the second. And that's going to be about a five minute spurt until I bring Sabonis back in to play with that bench. And in some way, somehow, I feel like like my belief in Aaron is still there. Mm-hmm. And they just have barely got to the lineup that was one of their best lineups last year. Yeah. And you know, maybe, maybe that group doesn't work anymore in this system, but they did work really well in the one game that they played the most minutes in against Chicago early in the year when they were, you know, full court pressing and getting all those turnovers with TJ and and really still having all that flow in the half court. So I want to get another look in the second quarter at that group. And then here's the biggie for me is I want to bring Karis in with not McConnell, not Brogdon and not Sabonis. I want to see him run a unit as a playmaker with Justin and Warren and Miles out there because I really want to see what he can do with the ball in his hands because I think that tells you a lot in the offseason about how many playmakers do we really have? Can we stagger them out and reduce some of Brogdon and Sabonis's load in that respect? Can we rely on this guy? And it's not going to be a big chunk. It's just going to be a few minutes in the middle of the second quarter before you go and finish the half with all five starters again. And that, I feel like, gets me most of the things that I want to see TJ Warren at the four Karis as a playmaker back to the bench unit that worked last year and also getting some developmental minutes for Goga. And then in the third, the second half, I would flip flop what I did with miles and Sabonis's roles mm. where instead of um, playing miles, most of the third or most of the first, like you did in the first quarter, I play Sabonis most of the third and then bring miles out for the solo miles minutes um, bridging this into the third start of the fourth so that Sabonis is playing less minutes in the fourth and can come back out stronger to close when they really need to be finishing off some of these games with the starters. So the rotation would be mainly similar to that. Only you would be getting more of Brogdon and Sabonis's minutes in the second half rather than using those in the first. And then my decision with Goga would be based on, okay, you got the five minutes in the first half if those go well and he plays well and earns the next grouping of minutes over that window, then you do it. And it's also based on how's the game going. Like are the Pacers, you know, way up, way behind. If it's a close one, then you're probably going to continue to lean on the solo miles minutes and maybe Goga's not getting them, but you know that every game you're at least getting a consistent amount of playing time with Goga. And I think that's where I land with all of it. Okay, yeah, that totally makes sense. And I, I think with what we've seen from the solo miles minutes so far too, I like like you mentioned, I'm ecstatic to see that with TJ out there. Um I I think ah, man, it just it's it's so it's so weird looking at this team and this roster because it's changed so much over the course of the year and it's still going to. And it's hard to really envision and picture what they're going to be and, and how that equates from what they are now. Um but overall, yeah, I, in, in looking at your minutes, I totally agree. Um, it's yeah, I just I just don't know what the roster is going to look like past the trade deadline. Because and I that's think the, that's a whole nother question. Yeah. And the TJ thing for me isn't even so much about necessarily which big. Like I would love <laughs> to see him running like Chicago action, like what you're seeing Michael Porter and and do at the four with. Jokic where you're pinning that guy down and then he's going into a dribble handoff when you can do that at the four spot that's really big I'd like to see that pairing but I just think it makes more sense to be bringing Sabonis out at the six minute mark and um, then it just makes it just falls that he would be playing with Miles but yeah I mean we don't know you know you don't know how the the front office sees the roster I do think 
just on a side note, I don't know what your next question is. Is it going to have to do with buying and selling at the trade deadline? It is not. Okay. Well, just as a side note to that, it does feel like it would be a little bit out of character for this front office to do that. That's what like I, I know well. that people have brought it up, but the Pacers other than Karras don't make a lot of midseason trades. And they were kind of back to a corner with that one. Cause you didn't really want to let Victor walk for nothing after you knew that he didn't want to re-sign at the amount that they were able to offer him. But like, I even look back at the 2018, 19 season and like, they knew that Victor was out for the year. He was injured and there was pretty much no chance they were getting out of the first round of the playoffs, but they felt like they owed it to those guys who had been working hard all season to commit to winning. And not only did they not sell on Thad or Corey or Bogdanovich, they went out and got Wesley Matthews on the buyout market and then played Wesley Matthews over Sumner and Aaron. And I'm not saying they're going to do that, but I think that speaks to how much they value projecting that they have this winning culture and thinking that that's important for them to sell to free agents that, you know, we prioritize winning here and we're going to help you. If you were to sign with us, that we're going to put that first, we want to win games. And, you know, as it turned out, they didn't re-sign that they didn't re-sign Corey and ended up, getting Brogdon in that sign and trade, but, you know, I'm sure there was contenders that would have been interested in any of those three players just because how much they had contributed to the Pacers. But um, I, I just think it would be somewhat out of character for them to sell on, on Doug and McDermott now, but maybe if they've had some of those conversations or if they know what they think the market's going to shake out to, then obviously you listen, or if you think that there's something guaranteed that's going to make you better, you of course do that. But I would be surprised if they started fire sailing at the deadline, but I could be wrong. Yeah, no, I feel similarly. I'm, I, it just doesn't seem like something that this front office would do and there's not really a track record for it. So um, we'll see though. Anything could happen. 20, uh, 2020, 2021 has, uh, found very curious ways of showing us that we're wrong and have no idea what we're talking about. Exactly. So, exactly. So we'll see what happens. Um, but my last question is a little bit more granular and, and just kind of structured on the game. And I know that you've written on this a little bit, but I just, I have to bring it up again and I want to talk about it in, in podcast. Um, what is up with running zone on sideline out of bounds plays uh, or just anything out of bounds in the Pacers when they're on defense uh, because it feels like almost every time that they come out in zone, it, it's an easy bucket. Like somebody gets left wide open. Like one that I always point out was uh, against Atlanta. I think they ran box and one mm-hmm. right out of uh, right out of an out of bounds play. And they left DeAndre Hunter wide open in the corner or they no, it wasn't DeAndre Hunter. It was Cam Reddish. They left yeah. Cam Reddish wide open. And I mean, there was a late close on him, but like you could see before the play even started that it was like, Hey, Cam Reddish is wide open in the corner. Like I get that we're playing box and one, but somebody has to be on a guy wide open in the corner. Like, and that that's how it it feels like that happens two or three times every game. Well, yeah. I mean, that happened in the first game against Denver too, because they played box and one during the Murray only minutes and it ball went out of bounds and, Vlacko was standing right in the corner and they lined up in their perfect box and just let him stand there and hit a three. But um, yeah, when I wrote the longer article about zone, if people want to go back and look at it and it's still true. Cause I check this every so often they're like 25th still bottom five might've even dropped to 27th over the weekend. If I recall and defending baseline out of bounds plays. 
Um, and they almost universally defend those with zone. And I think last night against Denver, you could see a pretty egregious example of that where Jokic was at the top of the key and they didn't know who to send up there. Meanwhile, Will Barton's just standing on the wing and Brogdon doesn't go over there to bump down. Um, that should have been his catch or I think he was the one on the low, I think. But bottom line is they did not the 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 low wing defender did not come up to take Barton and then the top guy needs to bump him down and that didn't even happen. They just watched him shoot a three. Then a few minutes later there's another baseline out of bound play and like lo and behold, they they matched up and the Nuggets ran pin downs on both sides and they forced a turnover. And it's like exactly. Like at this point I get that they want to use the different coverages and we've talked about this in ad nauseum, but in this specific instance, they're not surprising anyone with this anymore. Like Denver yeah. immediately called that out and did it. Every team knows that they're setting up in two, three zone on baseline out of bounds plays. And most of the time, all it takes and the stances, the stances, I'm sorry listeners for this rant, but I do not understand how we are 35 plus games into the season and people on the side with the ball are standing with their back to the two defenders that they're, that are in their zone. Like they can't even see where they are and yet it continues. So it makes me wonder, like either they have no time in film sessions to be like, Hey, what are you doing? And why are you, why are you standing that way? Or this is a directive. And if it's a directive, like I've racked my brain, like what would the reason for that be? And I don't know. I will probably have a longer thing about the sideline out of bounds plays because like obviously Sabonis was terrible in that minute in the fourth quarter. Like I think we all know that when he's face guarding Paul Millsap on a sideline out of bounds play and somebody asked me about it. That's what they've done all year. Like Miles did that in the first half against Jokic. Jokic just didn't dart to the basket. Like they want to face, if there's a big at the elbow on a sideline out of bounds play, either Miles or Sabonis is face guarding that guy. So then when the ball goes up overhead, you could see like, especially Miles, it's, I'm not picking on him at all. Like this is just what the scheme apparently is. He's having to spot the ball in the air while he's trying to check to track Jokic. And it's like, I don't understand why you would want to put that on him at all. And um, so that one, I'll have to write it about it a longer time, but yeah, the baseline plays, it's not surprising anybody anymore. And if they're not going to get better at who is responsible for taking cutters in that situation or the bump downs that continue to be a problem, like the zone really hasn't improved. The only thing that we can say, which I should have brought up in the first question about when I said, which game was more real is that against Phoenix, while they still ran it on baseline plays, like we haven't seen a lot of the junk coverages or the zone defense in any of these post all-star break games. They've ran like maybe three possessions of zone in each of those games. So I don't know if they're thinking that they're trying to ease Carrison because they don't want him having to learn like so much on the fly where he's going from coverage to coverage quite yet but we've seen a lot less of it in the last three games other than the egregious errors on those baseline plays. But did I, st- did I jump all over your take? No, no, that was great. I think I it's just, just the same thing I keep coming back to. Um, this team was really good at playing just sound, pretty basic defense last year. And I just think that there are opportunities where instead of, I, I saying getting cute sounds demeaning, but like at the same time, it just feels like it, you know, like it just, it almost feels like doing something to do it just, just cause. And I think that there are just easier ways to handle things because those are, those are just really simple points that you don't have to give up or just simple looks. It's not even about the points. It's just the fact that I, I'd rather give up a, 
a, a shot that goes in and have it be really well contested instead of having a shot that misses. That's a wide open three from the corner. Um, Absolutely. Just having the, the right process is what I, I want to see more of. Um, and, and it's and, still just not there. Yeah. Cause one thing I would bring up and I said this um, on DNVR last night, or I told Harrison that in the first game against Denver in the third quarter, they came out of a timeout and were like, exactly what you're talking about. Like let's play triangle and two against Jokic and Murray and Brogdon is shadowing Jokic with his back completely to the ball. And some of that comes along with how you're chasing in those scenarios. But like, why is Brogdon the person shadowing Jokic? And as it turned out, like, again, I'm not picking on miles at all. Like this isn't his fault, but he's looking at that matchup and being like, "Uh Oh, Brogdon shadowing Jokic and he can't stand in the lane for three seconds. So he's standing on the side of the lane that Brogdon shadowing on. And that leaves Sabonis on the opposite side of the triangle with Michael Porter Jr. in a corner and Will Barton at the wing. And he's like, you know, I need to go. I need to go stay with Michael Porter so that Miles ideally in that scheme would be protecting against Will Barton. But because you have Brogdon shadowing Jokic, all Will Barton did was drive into the middle of the lane and Jamal Murray's literally there like with his hands outstretched. Like, here's the silver platter. And it's like, you're just giving a team a basket and I get where they're coming from. Like, I know I've said this tons of times. I understand I'm not completely opposed to playing box and one and triangle and two. I just think that this was kind of a tough season to be trying to do all these things. And sometimes it feels really mismatched, which with which lineups are on the floor and against which opponents you're doing it. Like, I don't know that you need to be trying a triangle and two against Jokic and it just goes back to at times like, and I don't mean this to sound really mean, but it's like, sometimes I wonder if Bjorkren's like operating on a higher plane. Like, I think he's, I think he's super smart. It's like, are you operating on a higher plane than what the roster is capable? Or is some of this just like galaxy brained? Like to me, that feels a little galaxy brained in that specific scenario or like running the box and one on the out of bounds plays or, you know, just randomly having, Sabonis in a game match up with LaMelo ball, like not even with a cross match or not against a screen, just like he's assigned to LaMelo ball. Like some of it, I'm like, I don't, I feel like that's like a bridge too far for me, but yeah, no, I agree. And it's just, um, it's hard to like, like I I know a lot of people have brought up with me. Well, why aren't they just changing the scheme? And we've, again, we talked about this. I hit on this on my article last week. I mean, the, the team's barely practiced like 10 times this year. So you can't just throw out an entire scheme and try and rewrite something new because it's probably going to look even worse in some, some regards. Uh, so it's hard to change things up, but at the same time, I mean, there are ways that they could cut back on, on what they're doing and uh, simplify things a little bit, but and I don't that's know. What they did against Phoenix. I mean, <laughs> that was one of the takeaways. I'm like, well, we didn't play any junk defense. They didn't play any junk defense and they didn't play any two, three outside of possessions that wasn't on baseline plays. And overall, like, I'm not going to say it looked perfect. They still had some lapses, but um, it was more serviceable than I think it was looking prior to the break. But Denver just pre- presents some unique matchup issues in certain ways. But yeah, most I'm excited definitely. to get to the happy topic of this. Podcast. I am too. Also, where were you when Will Barton turned into Michael Jordan last year, last night? That was, <laughs> that was insane. Completely outscored the Pacers for like the first six minutes of the game. Good times. And then Gogo Bataze was like Kevin Garnett in uh, 
for, for like a five minute stretch. So uh, I, I think he touched the ball every five seconds. It was fantastic, but uh, yeah, I'm I ready for the, for the next part. Yeah. I will say a tiny thing on that, that some of Will Barton's Michael Jordan transformation had a little bit to do with Karis LeVert, but that's, a well, we don't, we don't have to, we, you know, that's a it's time topic for, the next for another time. time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, well, Caitlin, do you want to unveil what we're doing next? Yes, I'm super excited for this. The people have requested food takes. I don't know why the people have requested food takes because, you know, sometimes we've had some pretty wild ones, but they have asked for it. So in preparation for this, I told Mark, let's reveal our top five favorite foods. And let me tell you, like, this is a much harder process than you think it would be, especially for a person like me that's like over analytical because <laughs> I got so far into the weeds where I was like, what is a food? <laughs> uh, see, I had struggles with this as well because I have some things that are like individual foods, but then I have other stuff that's like it's multiple things. So yeah, is like is it a prepared like... dish? Is it a whole food? Like I wasn't sure what we were calling a food. And then even worse from that, I was like, what is something what makes something your favorite? So I'm interested to see what make something your favorite as we reveal these lists i power ranked mine i don't know if you ranked yours i ranked mine oh sure. yes okay we are we are totally ready for this then you go first what is number five on mark schindler's top five foods okay so in prefacing this uh i i'm looking at my list right now and this is like the most ungodly pairing of foods but it's <laughs> gonna we'll, we'll just dive right in uh number five for me is alaskan salmon I love salmon, but it has to yes. be cooked just right. Like uh, crispy on the outside. Like you can get like, I, I like having the skin on. I don't eat the skin, but it, you, it just helps with cooking. I don't know how, how else to describe it. Um, but salmon is just perfect if it's cooked right. Like that's one of my favorite things to get at restaurants, RIP to eating in restaurants. But um, salmon is just fantastic. Uh, my dog likes it too. Like I'll save the skin for him and put it in his food and he loves that. Um but it's just so versatile. You can eat it with anything. Like you can make it if you wanted to, you could have like a Chipotle bowl with salmon in it. Uh, you could have just salmon and rice. You could have, I wouldn't eat pasta because I don't like pasta, but I would just have I, I, salmon is it, 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 it flies anywhere. I, I just, I thoroughly enjoy it. Salmon is completely dope and it is on my list, but not at number five. So I will share my full salmon take later in this proceeding. But number five, I have to speak my truth. Like people are going to crush me for this, but it, it, I have to be who I am. Number five, like I need a drum roll. Outshine popsicles. <laughs> Outshine popsicles are number five on the list. And here's why, because I really debated what makes something a favorite. And what I came down to with this particular pick was there is literally no time of day that I would not eat an outshine popsicle. Like if I got up for breakfast and I had one of those available to me, I've eaten them for breakfast before I eat them for snacks. I eat them sometimes after dinner. They are my PEDs. I, <laughs> <laughs> there's never a time when I don't look forward to eating it either. And it is just so convenient. Like I'm not talking about like the sugar filled, like fake artificial popsicles, mm -hmm. like outshine popsicles, are real fruit i like the strawberry ones that's the one that i would pick and in some respects that is like eating a smoothie on a stick and i don't have to dirty up a blender or anything else it's just right there waiting for me in the morning to eat and it is delicious and they belong on the top five list i will be honest i've never had an outshine popsicle i don't think. what are you even doing with your life like <laughs> <laughs> crap well I, hey i've spent the last year here at indy cornrows so clearly i just haven't had time to eat popsicles um 
No. Oh, did you ever have the Minute Maid popsicles growing up? No. Oh my God. Those wait, the ones that are like in the triangle pack. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, like wedgies. my school served those for lunch. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes. I that I would count it as our fruit. <laughs> oh, <man>. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta love how things have changed. Um, no, popsicles are great. I haven't I haven't had a popsicle in forever. I need to change that, especially since it's actually like starting to get nice ish outside. But it no, doesn't matter. You can have them in the dead of winter. It, it really true. doesn't matter when you have a popsicle. It will always be delicious. Number four. What is your number four? My number four, it's going to sound really low, especially considering how often I eat these things, but tacos. And this is, I'll be honest, this is the most base thing I have on my list, just tacos plain. Um, but it, it's got to be sp- specific. I was getting into an argument with this with, with, with Dave Searle on Twitter uh, notorious for slandering my food takes. Um, I don't like corn tortillas. Like I really just don't like corn tortillas. I I think that they're kind of bland and chewy and I don't really like that. Um, I would so much rather have a flour tortilla or a hard shell. Um, I just think like if you're eating a corn tortilla, like why? Like, I, I think that you just have so many better options at your disposal. I'd rather have a bowl than have a corn tortilla to be frank. Um, but you can just do so many things with tacos. Like I, I had Condado delivered to me the other day and I got a hard shell wrapped in a flour tortilla with guacamole in between. Like, come on, you can't, you can't beat that. Tacos are just the ultimate vessel for food delivery. As far as I'm concerned, you can just do so many great things with them. Salsa is amazing. Uh, pineapple mango or and mango habanero as well. I mean, those are top tier salsas the best salsas to be honest um there's getting a lot of flavor with a taco you're getting a lot of options there i could not pick a taco because i just have so many food sensitivities and foods that don't love me back are not making it on this list but um tacos are quite good but so you're definitely a soft shell not a hard shell taco i am not yeah definitely okay Okay, so my number four, I'm copying you, is salmon because salmon rocks. It is awesome. And it is also my litmus test for most like steakhouse restaurants. Like Mm -hmm. if you do not serve salmon, I don't really want to go there. And if I go there, that's always the first thing I will order. And if it isn't good, then I don't want to go back. And (laughs) salmon can go wrong. Like if it isn't cooked in the middle, it's not great. And it needs to have a crispiness on the outside, as you mentioned, but salmon is delicious and definitely belongs on these lists and as we will find out like i had a hard time not just stocking this entire thing with seafood i really had to make some tough decisions because i love seafood but seafood is so good number um, three number wait, three wait i do have to ask oh, what is like the I- yeah what's the ideal uh what's like your ideal side with salmon baked sweet potato oh okay that is good i like that hundred percent of baked sweet potato, which are also awesome. And the superior potato, because you would never just bake a potato and just eat it without putting something on it, but you can totally just throw a baked sweet or a sweet potato in the oven and eat it without putting anything on it. And it would be just as good. You can see, that's what I wish people would understand. I think Thanksgiving has tainted what the idea of a sweet potato is for people. They think it has to have brown sugar and marshmallows on it. And I just, first of all, I don't really like that. Um, but also like baked sweet potatoes are just good. Like they're very good. Or even if you like roast sweet potatoes, fantastic, better than regular potatoes. So I am totally on board with you there. Number three for me is my all time favorite vegetable. That is 
unfavorably expensive, also kind of annoying to cook. So I don't have it that often, but if I can get it anywhere, I will get it. Actually, I, I used to work at a Mexican restaurant. That was my first bartending job. And I was really annoying because whenever I got a, uh, like every single day, you would get a, like a free shift meal and I would order like three orders of asparagus because I'm that person. Uh, oh, I, I just, I just said it. Asparagus. Asparagus <laughs> is fantastic. Uh, you spoiled it. I completely spoiled it on accident, but no, asparagus is just amazing. I, I, I like the, there's just no way to describe a perfectly cooked piece of asparagus. Like it's, it's soft and it's tender, but then on the outside, it's, it's like almost crunchy and it's perfect. And you just put like a little bit of garlic and um, a little bit of salt and some lemon juice on asparagus. And it's absolute perfection. And I don't think you need another vegetable in your life, to be completely honest. No, aspar- asparagus crushes it. Um, it takes me back to my time when I was taking German clear back in high school, because we had to all identify in like my first year of German, like be able to say what your favorite vegetable was. And I will forever remember that the German word for asparagus is sparkle because asparagus is awesome. And that's what you should pick when you're in German class and need to say (laughs) what what your favorite vegetable is. (laughs) I love that. Oh, what's number three for you? Okay. So now I'm going to have like an ugly American accent, but And I have to preface this by saying like what I said with salmon, I had a very hard time because I love uh, scallops. I love Alaskan king crab legs and I love Maine red lobster tail. All so good. Like if it's a special occasion, like one of those is going to be eaten by me. But in the end, none of them ended up making the list because I had to make room for a balanced thing, but I still needed to get another seafood element on here. So it is shrimp bruschetta. Ooh. And this is why, because there is not a, you're getting, it's like the taco of the seafood world, because I'm getting a lot of bang for my buck. I'm getting the shrimp, which quenches my need for seafood. I'm getting bread, good, shrimp, delicious, white wine, garlic sauce, yum, tomatoes, yep. And then also the big one, black olives, which are the gatekeeper for food takes. Like if you think that olives are good, you're a foodie. If you don't, it's like, it's like your opinion of George Hill back in the day. Like if you recognize that George Hill had value for the 2013, 14, 2012 Pacers, like you watched a lot of Pacers and you knew basketball. If you thought he was like trash and didn't offer anything, then you probably weren't watching that much Pacers. That's the black olive world. So I need shrimp bruschetta and that's what I chose for my prepared seafood dish. I have so many questions. People thought George Hill was trash. Oh yes. You weren't around for those conversations. I was like, like, I was like every month there was a new, we need a real point guard take like every month. What on earth? That is insane to me. I can't believe that was a thing. Holy shit. George Hill was so good. George Hill. I'll, I'll, you know, I'm going to say right now, I think George Hill was better than Mark Jackson. Um, I think Mark Jackson is one of the most overrated players to ever play for the Pacers, partially because I don't like Mark Jackson. He's uh, done some questionable <laughs> things morally um, and also is overrated as a coach in some regards. Um, George Hill is fantastic. And you can totally, like, I think George Hill would be fantastic on this team, even in his current state. Like, I mean, uh, I, I, George Hill was probably my second favorite player on that team. Like, I loved Paul, obviously. Um, but David, David West was definitely my favorite player, but, but George was just awesome. Um, the only 
downside to George was that he was like the poster child for the awful Hickory jerseys in the worst year of like Pacers basketball ever. So that blonde was a, George Hill was a treasure though. Blonde yeah, that George was, was a, a time. There was a time. Blonde George Hill was a, that was a, that was a whole vibe that uh, we have not even begun to experience in Indiana yet again. Um, but I do enjoy the shrimp takes. I don't like olives though. Um, what? Yeah, I know. Not black so, or green? I don't like any olives. Uh, mostly because I used to have to make Bloody Marys all the time. And I hated getting olives out of the olive jar because I hate the smell of olive juice. So I've just never liked olives. The weird thing about olives is when you're eating them, you don't really know why you like them. Like, I don't know why I like a green olive. I just, I've gotten, an, I've appreciate them over time but i'll have to try them again yeah, i, I think bla- like i've had black olives on pizza and i don't mind yeah. but black olives just on their own uh we'll see on that um all right number two for me this one i debated putting this number one because this is something i could eat multiple of every day like I, we're in that territory like this is something you could eat every single day i couldn't eat salmon every day because i know you're not supposed to eat you'd get mercury poisoning unfortunately um i can't get mercury poisoning from this so that is that is a plus it is also in some ways crispy but you might say crisp instead and that is a granny smith apple i think a granny smith apple that is fresh is quite possibly the best experience of both mouthfeel taste texture everything um and I also, I'm a really weird person with apples. I don't eat them with my, well, I mean, I eat them with my hands, of course. Like you have to you eat things with your, like, I mean, I guess you don't have to eat things with your hands, but I do. Um, I cut them, like I slice them myself. I don't use an apple slicer because it makes the, the wedges too big. I use my own chef's knife and I cut it into at least like 12 slices and eat it like that. And it's fantastic because there's like, you get the crunch by biting into it. You get the tart and the sourness of it, but then if it's perfect, you get like the sweetness too. And I just don't like. There's this uh, there's this place by me in Toledo that's uh, it's just like a family run apple orchard, and I got um, I got Granny Smiths there probably about a year ago, and I think they're the best apples I've ever had. I ate like four in one day. I felt kind of awful because uh, I just felt so full, but I'd do it again. Um, Granny Smith apples are just fantastic. And I don't think like, and they're also great for baking too. I don't like apple pie at all, actually, but um, I know Granny Smiths are what you're supposed to use for apple pie. So there's that. Apple pie is extremely basic, but beyond that, like I'm just blown away by this take that apples, apples of all the fruits made the top five list. Like where can, can we get a slow cap for pineapple? Like pineapple is great, but it's not Granny Smith. And but Granny Smith is not even the best apple. What is the best apple then? <laughs> well, um, I can name a lot: Honeycrisp, Gala, Jazz, Sweet oh, Tango. Oh, I don't like Jazz. Sweet like Tango jazz. is delicious. All much better. The only one that the green apple is better than is like the Red Delicious Washington. Like, oh, Red taste. Delicious. Red okay, one. so Red Delicious tastes like they have wax on the outside. Yes, they're terrible. Um. I can't believe you just call it the green apple instead of granny Smith apple. That is, that's slander. Um, that is my 2012, 13 George Hill. 
is is Granny Smith apples. I block Granny Smith apples. I I reject that as a number two pick. But. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, so this is a funny thing. I I texted some some of my friends were asking me yesterday in one of my group chats that I'm in, what is going on in, uh, in Pacers fandom. And uh, I found a, I always keep tabs on Pacers Facebook just so I know what people are talking about or thinking because it gives me ideas for stuff. Um, there was a, a real thread yesterday about people saying that they missed Roy Hibbert and wish she was on the team still. And uh, that was just not a take I expected to see yesterday. <laughs> so uh, that, that warms my heart a little bit. Just, I, just I did tad. love Roy. Roy was, Roy was fun. I liked Roy a lot, but I still can't believe that you don't like Granny Smith apples. This is like, that actually pains me a little bit. Okay. So my number two take is one that comes from a place of, if I go over to somebody's house or I'm at some sort of event where these are brought and somebody's like, Hey, Caitlin, do you want one of these? I'm never going to say no. And I don't even have to know what type it is. Number two cookies. Oh, cookies are, equally good as a snack or a dessert they're they're just there's basically no bad cookies now i was oh. told there's there's very few bad cookies mark <laughs> there there are some bad if if it has a raisin in it it is a bad cookie well i'm getting to that like okay. i'm getting to that so i asked somebody in preparation for this because i was having a really hard time narrowing this down i said what are my five favorite foods somebody that i'm close with and they they're like you cannot say cookies they're like you have to pick a cookie so i was like fine i will narrow it down to a cookie and here's the education that's coming okay so oatmeal raisin cookies are the chocolate granola bars of the cookie world like if you're gonna eat a granola bar covered in chocolate just go eat a candy bar like (laughs) You don't need to do that. And the same thing, like if you're going to go out and eat a cookie filled with sugar anyways, like we don't need to make it healthy with raisins. No. Oatmeal cookies are an A1 cookie if you put butterscotch chips in them. Oh, so number two, funny. oatmeal scotchy cookies. That is where we are. But more broadly, just cookies. I've never had an oatmeal butterscotch cookie, but I've like – have you ever had just like a plain oatmeal cookie? Because they're actually yes, really they're good. good. They're and fantastic. There's, there's no limit of those that you can eat. Like yeah. it's very hard to quit eating them when they're just plain oatmeal. Yeah. I no, I see. I'm trying to think. I don't like snickerdoodles. I think snickerdoodles are one of the most overrated cookies. Um, just because I don't uh, like. But I'm not turning down a snickerdoodle. Like I won't turn it down. Like if it's fresh, sure, I'll take it. Um, but I don't really like them that much. Peanut butter cookies can be good, but only if they're soft. I don't really like hard peanut butter cookies um i also enjoy like a double fudge cookie so like a chocolate cookie with like chocolate in it oh my god i a part of that's just because i'm like a fiend for chocolate but yeah cookies are good i would say though i think brownies are better no no that's incorrect you can't do near as much with a brownie and brownies can go wrong like if if those are like thick like cake or if they have whole chocolate chips in them no Okay, I don't that's need fair. that in my life. That like, is very fair. I don't need that in my life. But okay, like this is the big reveal. I need to know what is number one on Mark Schindler's favorite <sighs> foods. I uh I'm very I've been I'm, weird. I'm, I'm not prepared this. after Granny Smith <laughs> apples. <laughs> I think it gets a little weirder. Um, I have gotten some blowback for this take before. Um I decided what my number one would be based off the question if you could only have one thing for the rest of your life to eat, what would it be? Outside uh, popsicles. <laughs> uh, and that was number five on your list. 
Okay, well then. We... I, I started ranking things differently. When we get to number one, you're going to understand where my rationale Okay, okay. From. Well, based on my rationale and also the fact that I eat it normally two or three times a day, it's peanut butter. Peanut butter is the number one food on my list. Some might say peanut butter is not a food and that it is a spread. And I'll tell you, it is both. Um, I think peanut butter is fantastic. There's just like all forms of it are great. I think crunchy is is great for certain things. Like if I'm just going to have a peanut butter sandwich because I don't use jelly because why would I use jelly? Jelly is gross. Um, crunchy peanut butter on a sandwich. Fantastic. You can mix peanut butter into things like oatmeal. You can put it on bagels. You can put it on any other carb. That's not pasta. Um, or rice. I would not recommend putting in peanut butter on rice. I have not tried that. Uh, please don't try that. That's disgusting. Um, long story short, peanut butter is just amazing. And then you could also incorporate all kinds of nut butters. Like peanut butter is just, I just don't think I could, I actually don't think I could survive without it. I don't know what I would do without it. And if I like randomly just became allergic to peanuts, I, Oh no. Oh God, that would be terrible. I can't even imagine what my life would be like. But yeah, peanut butter is number one for me by a healthy margin. I respect it. I respect that. Like you can put, I mean, peanut butter makes fantastic pie. Peanut butter makes fantastic cake. Peanut butter is good on its own. Peanut butter is good spread on an apple. Uh, I mean, I'm surprised this isn't your, like your number one combo. Peanut butter on a I actually Smith don't apple. like peanut butter on apples. What? I'm this, really this is... weird about, I don't like letting my food touch one another. Like, okay. See, I get really uncomfortable at Thanksgiving when people just like I see people put like 12 mounds of things on their plate and it all like congeals and touches yeah. one another. I don't like yeah. that. That's oh, God, that's like my worst. That's nightmare. kind of like the messy food problem. Like when too much stuff gets piled on like Mexican food and it's just like you can't even taste the original thing anymore because it's just smothered in layers and layers of like salsa and other stuff. Yeah, exactly. It's just a big messy pile. Yeah. I see that. Number one for me is very, very specific, and I would not want to eat it every day, but I can't imagine my life if I never ate this. This is more like one of the best things I ever ate, and it comes from a place of nostalgia, which I realize plays a big part in your favorite list. Like if a loved one made something for you and that brings back a memory or a place that you went and that's where this comes from so growing up my family went to disney world like a lot like i love disney world i easily could have survived the nba bubble well i don't know (laughs) if i could have because i would want to be escaping all the time and going to the park so i love disney world and during all that discussion disney world got a bad rap like there's people like what are they going to eat there every day like chicken fingers i'm like no like obviously they couldn't leave the resorts but there are five-star restaurants that are jacket only at disney world like they have high quality food there so So my number one is at the pastry shop at the French Pavilion at Epcot when I was little a couple times. It does not exist anymore, but I would go in there and you'd you'd look at the whole case and I would get so excited if they had the pastry that was called Raspberry Shoes. And there's like an acclaimed French pastry guy, can't think of his name, who invented this and then Disney kind of like riffed off of it, I believe. But basically what it is, is it's a rectangular um, pastry that's topped with like the best layer of raspberry glaze that you've ever tasted 
with pastry cream, then a thin bit of chocolate on like this wafer thin crust. And the bite is just like one bite of it is perfect. And then you order it and you go outside and there's fountains. And I love fountains. Like I really love fountains. And you can sit right beside it and you're in sunny Florida. And like, it's just the hap- literally the happiest place on earth. And then you eat the raspberry shoes and it's like, life is good. And I would even order more than one piece because back then they would ship it to your resort so that when you got to your room later that night you would have like a whole another piece of it and um yeah I can't explain to you like it just brings back really good memories and then I got to a point where we went later on when I was like preteen teenager and they no longer made it anymore and now they bring it back and it is an imposter like it is an abomination <laughs> look it up on the internet like people can look it up after this like that is not what raspberry shoes was when I was little but um really good memories of doing stuff with my family so that's my number one favorite food that sounds really good. I've actually, so I've never been to Des- Disneyland or Disney World, and I've never been to Florida. So never been to Florida. Yeah, I'm a, I'm uncultured. So where, where were your vacations? Uh, we didn't take a ton of vacations growing up. We had yeah. like this place that we used to go to uh, up in Canada that my family had a like a cottage at. Okay. Absolute middle of nowhere. It was fantastic though. I kind of like being in the sometimes middle of nowhere. Sometimes it's good sometimes. not to, weird to say it during quarantine. But sometimes <laughs> it's good not to be around people. Yes, if we're exactly. Being honest. I completely if agree. I honest. I like not having to be around electronics or or anything and just kind of shut down sometimes. Um, I really want to try raspberry shoes now, but it seems like it's just not. A th- I don't think you can try it anymore. Like you would probably have to go to Paris and like find wherever that guy's shop used to be. I don't think he's even living anymore, but um, yeah. So I'll probably never have this again, which probably has built it up in my head to being like levels that it may not even be in reality anymore, but it was wonderful. It was everything that I wanted. Well, when in and doubt, I, you can just have a Granny Smith apple. It's pretty much better. So. No, no. If I'm bumping <laughs> one of these things, it's going to be for scallops or Alaskan king crab legs and nothing else. Like, it really wasn't that hard to narrow it to five. It was more like, because I really don't like that many foods, like, like, like them a lot. Sometimes food is just like a means of sustenance for me. But <laughs> I kind um, of really agree with that. But these ones I feel really good about. Well, Caitlin, I think this was an important exercise for people to just learn a lot about food in general. I, I exactly. Maybe we should just start up a food podcast. Um, I think people could learn a lot from us. We had very, very, very different lists. Um, but I think salmon. I think we can get. We did have. And I was surprised sometime. that we had one of the same ones. I'm pretty proud about that. Um, Indy Corner was showing out. Uh, I feel, I feel that I represented myself pretty damn well with my we list. were true to ourselves nobody can say that, that exactly we true to ourselves. see what i'm just picturing now is like we're not in- going for clicks here like no never we don't go for clicks at any corners we're here for analysis that is fantastic um all i can picture right now is like a spread right in front of me of all of my my five favorite foods and it's just a very odd spread <laughs> yes. because there is a I'm imagining a plate of salmon right in front of me with asparagus on the side. I'm like, okay, that's normal. I, I can get that at a steakhouse. Then there's a taco next to it. I'm like, hmm, okay, I'm at a tapas bar. And then there's there's a Granny Smith apple there too. And it's cut up just like how I do every morning. And I'm like, okay, this is getting weird. And then I don't know if there's a whole jar of peanut butter or just like peanut butter in like a container or just peanut butter spread onto something on the plate. This is a weird, weird conglomeration of food, but, but we're here now. So it, it all comes together in the end. It's like chopped, but with, uh, with Indy cornrows. 
yeah and i'm planning on next month revealing the least favorite foods like, yes I, uh, this is gonna be way easier i'm pretty sure oh yes my problem's gonna be narrowing it down to five because i really <laughs> don't like a lot of foods yes i have i have strong feelings towards some foods that some people find delicious too so um yeah this was great hopefully people uh got some laughs out of our food takes while suffering through our bad pacer takes but hey yeah i think uh definitely a lot of great takeaways to, to get on both sides of this uh caitlin thank you as always for coming on. i always enjoy getting to do this it's a highlight of my tuesday so thank you uh thank you for doing it to everyone listening of course go follow caitlin everything she does follow everything that i do and uh, just keep up with us over at any cornrows and most importantly have a good rest of your day and as far as the pacers go uh it's it is a it's an interesting year we're covering it um there's there's a lot more to come still and just try and uh try and keep level head with it because there are there are positives there are negatives just like with anything um thing, things things are looking up in some regards so just uh enjoy the rest of your day try not to let basketball get you down it's a fun thing